Hey everyone, it's Cam Hurt, host of the Best Show Ever podcast, and we have got a second season coming out very soon that I am very excited about. We've got some very cool special guests, including musical acts that we all love, like Karina Reichman, Daniel Donato, Jake Brownstein from Eggy, Rick and Peter from Goose, and many more. Tune in for new episodes dropping on Osiris Media March 5th on the Best Show Ever podcast. Welcome to Wheels Off, a show about the messy reality of the creative life. I'm Rhett Miller. That's when it got wheels off. We started up and we ain't gonna stop. Oh, I like you, like it not. That's when it got wheels off. We think we know the people on our television. They're there in our living room in a box, looking at us, laughing saying funny things, walking around. They're a part of our family. They're a part of our lives. Of course we know them. I've had it happen before that someone I knew only from a television show that I watched showed up in a dressing room after a gig one night. And I looked at him, this actor, and I said, oh, I know you, thinking that I did, thinking it was someone from my life whose name I was not able to place momentarily, which happens, sadly. I haven't treated my brain as gently as I should have over the years. In fact, I had never met this person before. I just was looking at him and assuming that he was someone that I was close friends with because I had spent hours of my life in his company. That exact thing is true of my guest on this episode of Wheels Off. I have spent hours of my life in his company. And that was even before I met him. But I'm lucky enough to be friends with Rain Wilson in real life. And he's not the person from the TV. It's easy to think that that's who they are, because they're there on our TV in our living room all the time. Of course that's who he is. But Rain Wilson is not any of the characters whom he has embodied. He is his own person. A complicated person, it turns out. An interesting person, clearly. A deep, funny, thoughtful guy. Maybe there's some darkness there that you might not have guessed at from his TV personae, film personae. He's definitely a lot. The interview he gave me a few weeks ago in a conference room of a production company in Studio City might be the best interview I've been a part of since starting Wheels Off. I don't say that to pat myself on the back necessarily. Uh, I do think I guess I've gotten better over the course of the year that I've been doing these. But what makes it so great is his willingness to go there to open up and be honest and address the tough things and talk about the tricky things. Rain is a sweetheart, and I'm lucky to be his friend. Like so many things in my life, it is an offshoot, um, a perk of my job. The music I've made connects with people that I admire, 
And then I get to be real life friends with these people who I maybe only know because they live in a box in my living room or on a giant screen in my local cineplex. But knowing Rain, I had a feeling this would be a good conversation and it was better than I could have imagined. I don't mean to build it up too much. I just really want to say I love talking to all of these people that I have gotten to talk to in the course of creating these podcasts. And Rain Wilson gives me an interview that I feel like uh, is worthy of capping off the one-year mark of Wheels Off. I hope you enjoy it. It goes a lot of places that I didn't expect, that I don't think you will expect. But it's everything I hoped for when I started making these podcasts. And I'm so grateful to be able to introduce you to my guest this week on Wheels Off, Rain Wilson. Welcome to Wheels Off, Rain Wilson. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Did you say Wheels Off? Wheels Off is the name of the podcast. I thought it was Wheels Up. No, that would make more sense unless you start thinking about like the creative life being this thing that's out of control. Ah. Like say you're in a race car. I Here I was thinking that we were doing a podcast called Wheels Up. And it's wheels off. This is changing everything. Oh my god, everything is coming into coming into disarray. It's a podcast about the messy reality of the creative life. I love it. Yeah. Oh my god. Uh, no, wheels up would be good, but that's a little too slick for me. Yeah, wheel. Yeah, that, that is, and it's almost like a travel show. Wheels up. Yeah. <laughs> Which I thought about. So this is all an aside before we even start I, you know podcasts are so ubiquitous you right? can use it well you should use this oh we this will gold. Nothing, gets, gold. nothing gets edited out okay, on these okay. um, but like podcasts are we all have to do them right it's almost like contractual at this point sure. where every, every mm-hmm. art, artistically inclined yeah. person but so I went through a lot of different ideas about what would I want to do a podcast about for the last two or three years and really put it off not wanting to do it but the one that I was closest to doing was talking to people about where they're from, like their hometown, and like a travelogue kind of series. Because I spend, like you, I think, so much of my life traveling around and just yeah. being in these weird different towns. And I love it. But it's, you know, like it, it would be kind of sweet to have people that I thought were cool telling me what was cool about these random towns. Hmm. Never went too far because everybody I talked to, there was like, yeah, I don't want to talk about where I'm from. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. I think you have to be in a certain place in your life yeah. where you're able to kind of like appreciate where you're from and sit down and talk about it and go into the details and, and whatnot. But um, I think there were probably several decades in my life was the last thing I wanted to talk about was suburban Seattle, you know? <laughs> but so what I wound up with was this idea that the conversations that I, that you and I have had conversations like this before, but the things I end up talking to about people that I... Uh, get to run into in my job, people that I admire, peers, friends. It usually winds up being about what we're doing. And then like the f- sort of philosophical questions about how do we keep doing it and then all this stuff. So I will begin by asking you, what creative project are you working on at the moment and how does it light you up? Well, <clears throat> I'm working on a lot of different creative projects at the moment. And... Uh, I'm so glad we're having this discussion because this is a very complicated question for me, mostly because 
Can I go back? I'm going to go way back. Yeah, yeah. Back to the very beginning. Because I started, Rhett, I started as an artist, and I'm not so much an artist anymore. I'm more of a public figure, doing public figure things. (laughs) So when I, you know, I went to acting school, and we were doing theater, and I was doing experimental theater in downtown New York. I mean, just some crazy shit, putting Kafka short stories to life and creating clown vaudeville shows and underground theaters and, and um, you know, doing poetry readings and whatnot. Like, I really thought, like, oh, theater can change the world, that um, we're storytellers in the tradition of shamans, uh, that we can um, change people's hearts and minds by doing, you know, the right production of, of the three sisters in the right church basement for the right 17 people <laughs> and just blow their minds and, um, and shift consciousness in a way and to find and strive for ever more daring and outrageous methods of storytelling and an ever deeper truth um, uh, in, in our work as actors so that we're not getting in our way. You know, and this was great, and that fed me for years and years and years. And and then, you know, some realities start to set in. It's like, oh, I'm never making over 20 grand in a year doing theater. So I was working. I had an agent, et cetera. Like, I need to do some film and TV in order to pay some bills. I'll never forget, I did a, a theater tour um, uh, called The Acting Company, and we did Shakespeare plays. We were doing Midsummer Night's Dream for, like, six months out on the road and I was in, in this tour oh. company with Jeffrey Wright I love that who's, play um, and who's an actor in Westworld and you'd recognize him he'd been in a thousand things and he had done like three days on a Harrison Ford movie and we got back from being on the road for six months and he had a residual check waiting for him and our mailbox of the, at the theater company and it was for more money than we had made <laughs> for the entire tour <laughs> And I was like, in my head, I was like, oh, man, I'm in the wrong business. So, anyways, I know I'm talking a lot, but... That's the idea. Okay, good. So, fast forward to moving to L.A., getting some film and TV work, um, and then, you know, and then finally getting on the office, and then making some money, and... Did it feel like a shift with Six Feet? I mean, was that because... Yeah, Six Feet Under was really the... The, the, the turning point when I got cast in that that kind of like shifted everything that was right when HBO was doing The Sopranos and Entourage The Wire they were all on at the same time Sex in the City it was like this there wasn't any kind of like high quality TV at the time except yeah. there so I was on one of those first shows and that really opened a lot of doors and that got me into the office and, and whatnot. so but now I find this is, you know, a very long. There's a lot more to this story than this, but going off of your very first question, you know, now I find myself, you know, being a well-known, recognized celebrity, large social media following, and feeling like I'm beholden to that in mm-hmm. some way. There's still some part of me that I want to go make like sculptures of weird animals in a basement, or I want to write poetry that no one will ever read or I want to do theater that is only going to be seen by 80 people or something like that like I just want to be a quiet little artist on the side but I feel this responsibility 
toward my career and my brand and but also for making a social impact like yeah. so what am I working one of the things that I'm working on right now is um, I feel like this isn't a podcast interview it's a podcast monologue but no I love it okay nobody wants to hear me okay I mean I will <laughs> talk don't worry <laughs> all right so is I really wanted to do something more about climate change because it's something I like I'm a tweeter I'm a Twitter activist I'm a keyboard social justice warrior about it but I don't actually do anything about it I've seen you do stuff. I mean, your work in Haiti is pretty amazing. I know that's not climate change specific. But yeah, specifically on this issue yeah. of climate change, I hadn't really done much. So I had this opportunity to go with these scientists to uh, Greenland. Mm-hmm. I'm going to pause for a second. When I interviewed Rachel Yamagata, we were on her front porch and the birds were overwhelming. They were so loud. They were so loud. But I got to say, I mean, right now, I'll tell our audience right now, we're sitting in a conference room of one of your friend's production companies in Studio City. Yeah. So we're like right next to Van Nuys Boulevard. And it's trucks rattling by. What was that weird? That was that an was airplane. A, that was a huge airplane. Yeah. Why was it flying over Van Nuys? Probably dumping water on another fire. Yeah, Speaking of climate change. Uh, so anyways, I had this opportunity to go to Greenland with these scientists and see the... Um, to see the um, the glaciers that are melting and to yeah. witness some of the impact of climate change and to do a deep dive into the science. And, and so I filmed it on a really super shoestring budget. I had my own camera and we hired a cameraman for part of the trip and kind of narrated it and stuff like that. And I think this is important. And I think tens of thousands, hopefully hundreds of thousands of people will see the video when it goes up online. Um, I doubt it will hit millions, but... Um, Hopefully, people will see it that aren't just already on board with fixing climate change. But that's the kind of thing I feel a responsibility to do as a as a public figure. But it's not like art, you know. It's it's Rain Wilson, the goofy celebrity, taking a trip to Greenland, yeah. learning about climate change science. But it's not an expression of my soul, of my history through a medium, um, trying to create something beautiful or meaningful. Um, you know, with um, with kind of with a style, with technique. Yeah. So it's just like getting something out on YouTube. <laughs> yeah. About an issue. It's so it's funny. So almost it's like it's the double edged nature of the success you've had and the broad nature of that success. Where it's I mean, it's got to be a bit of a yoke or a mantle, because but it gives you the platform to do. I mean, just the kind things you've done. You know, I had a friend recently with a, a daughter who was having a birthday and he was sick and this daughter was a giant fan of yours. And I wonder if this is because of um, one of the tenets of the Baha'i faith being service as like the main goal of our lives. Mm-hmm. Um, but you immediately sent this really sweet video for the, her for her birthday. And this, you just, you know, like it would be so easy for you not to do these things, mm-hmm. I, I imagine. Like, it, I mean... Yeah, but even like that, right? Come on. I mean, okay. you're a buddy. You've gotten me into shows for free. <laughs> like, okay, I took but I three see, and a half minutes no, to make a video and send it to you. But I mean, I, my impression is you do, you do shit like this all the time. You do good things for people. You're out there really trying. But I, I see your point being that you have to be a celebrity rather than an artist a lot of times. Do you feel like there's art... Right now, like, are you able to... Because you're, you're acting a lot. Yeah, I'm acting a lot. Um, and to tell you the truth, like, 
the acting, I'm going through a weird transition where the acting is less and less meaningful to me. I mean, for my whole life, I mean, once I started acting when I was 16, um, acting was everything. I was like, oh my God, I will do anything to do this. Yeah. And if I can get paid to do this, to play roles and entertain people and make them laugh and become characters and say incredible language, oh my God, that would be, I could just die. I mean, it was everything. So everything, all of a sudden, when I got bitten by that bug in college, it's probably the same way with you in music. Um, I would just do anything I possibly could to be in a play, do a reading, read language, read more plays, study the craft of acting. And I did need to study it. I was, in some ways, I had some natural talent, but there was a lot I needed to learn at acting school. You know, I was not ready to just go out and be a professional actor. So... um, and then that drove me through my whole life and my whole career. And all of a sudden, I kind of hit 50. And then I do acting. It's like, I enjoy it. And I make an incredible paycheck. I'm so lucky to be able to do it professionally. But it's just not quite as fulfilling to me. Whereas some other stuff that I've been doing, some writing, some directing, some producing, uh, are, are turning me on more. I wonder if it's the unconquered nature of those different disciplines. You know, I mean, because in a way you've conquered acting. You've done so many different roles and so many different things with it. Yeah. And you hear writing and producing and directing. I mean, I don't think one ever conquers uh, an art, but I I know what you mean. I've had great success at it. But, you know, you can be like Sir Laurence Olivier and be working your entire life to just excavate and get more and more specific with your acting and to make the transformations into characters better and better. Um, there's so much more you can do. Um, so, uh, yeah, I don't know. Maybe that has something to do with that. I'm sure it does on some level. Yeah. So, uh, you, you addressed this just now a little bit, but when you, when you were young, I mean, your dad's an artist, like he's mm-hmm. a pretty incredible visual artist. I, yeah. He's I think. pretty great. Mm-hmm. And um, so you grew up in a, in a super artistic situation. Mm-hmm. And, and in my imagination, I think that, you know, Washington State outside of Seattle, like this is a pretty fertile, I mean, I could be completely wrong. It's probably filled with rednecks like everywhere else <laughs> in the world. But so was there a moment when you were young where you really knew that this was what you were going to do, specifically acting and, and inhabiting these characters? Well, you know, I grew up in suburban Seattle in the 70s and early 80s, and there were not a lot of artists around. So Seattle was not really known as a arts town. You know, grunge hadn't hit yet. Um, Heart was from Seattle. So that was what we aspired to. Like. Well, Tom Robbins. Tom Robbins. Right? Was, the novelist. I don't think he was from Seattle. I think he was from Washington State somewhere. Oh, okay, okay. I mean, there were some artists from out there. I mean, even Raymond Carver was from Washington State. But... Oh, yeah. um, but yeah, so I, it was a lot of my friends' dads were all real estate agents and insurance <laughs> salesmen and fishermen, and uh, it, it was a little bit rednecky where I was from. So that was one thing for me. Like, to, my dad was an aspiring artist and he was a painter, but he was amateur and he never sold his work, um, or rarely did. He also, on the side, wrote science fiction novels. I did not know that. Yeah. That's so, so cool. So it was crazy. So my dad was this just wannabe artist, but he he was not very good at selling his work and promoting his work. And 
as we know, that's that can be difficult uh, yeah. for us artists. But unfortunately, it's a hat we have to put on sometimes. Um, but he wrote these weird little science fiction and fantasy novels on the side, on a typewriter, no less. Of course. You know? And then would also be painting abstract oil paintings. So the bohemian life was something I really liked and uh, admired and wanted to participate in. Uh, but I didn't know anyone who ever got paid to make art. So that was it. That was a big stretch. That was a big reach. Like, oh, this person got paid $500 for this poem. Or they wrote a play and they got thousands of dollars. Or they wrote a song and it was on the radio and they made money. Um, not that it has to do with transaction, but just making a living. Yeah. Like, is it? Is there any practicality to this at all? Is it realistic? Yeah. I knew yeah. that some people did get paid to make art, but very, very few. And so I was trying to really wrap my head around that. Like, do people get paid to act? Um, and I'll never forget going on a school field trip. Um, what's it, What was the play? I'm forgetting the play. It was like a... It was like a 1920s uh, gangster comedy. At guys Seattle. and Dolls. No, that's it was like Guys and Dolls, but it was a play version of that. Um, someone is probably right now listening to the podcast. Like, <laughs> oh, it's... Screaming. Um, but... Uh, uh, and I, I remember just seeing these actors in the play, and uh, it was really jaw-dropping because I was like, oh, wow, look at that there. They're in costumes. They're pretending to be characters that they're not. They're making people laugh. And I was like, I bet that they, I bet that's their job. And I was just watching the play and thinking about them like after the play, they take off their costumes and wipe off their makeup and go get a sandwich before the next play. And then they go home and walk their dog. And what's that like? Like, and I I wanted to aspire towards that. That's so funny. You're reminding me so much of a moment that was a similar epiphany kind of moment for me where I went and saw David Bowie play. Oh, my and God. he came off. It was the Serious Moonlight Tour. And he came off before the encore, and I happened to be seated at Reunion Arena around the side of the stage. So I had this perfect view when he came off the stage and stood on this small flight of stairs, and an assistant handed him a lit cigarette and a towel. And then he toweled off and started smoking, and he was drinking. Someone handed him a, like a cocktail tumbler. And he was breathing, and 17,000 people were chanting, Bowie, Bowie. And I, but I was watching him, like you. I was thinking, oh, okay, so this is where he gets to have a moment to himself. <laughs> and then, so, and then, but then I thought, oh, and then after he does three more songs, or whatever, six more songs, then he'll probably go change out of his sweaty clothes. Like, but it's that, right? Yeah, you're tra- tracing it through in a real practical level. Well, it's, it's yeah, so you're imagining the real-life yeah. aspect of yeah. this as a job. yeah. That's funny. How old were you when you went to that play? I was uh, um, um, uh, make lots of fart noises. I was about fifteen. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, that's uh, we both have sons around that same age, yeah. and it's uh, it's just such a hard age, but it's also such a a brilliant age where you're really open. That's what makes it hard, maybe. Yeah. 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 It's. Um, that's tricky. You know, we were talking about before this podcast started, uh, the self-consciousness that comes in those teenage yeah. years of like, you feel like everyone's judging everything that you do and every choice you make, people are watching you. And, and in some ways they are at yeah. school. You're under this kind of intense lens. And, and we, what and you need to be an artist is to shake that. I mean, you can't, you cannot 
if you want to be a successful artist, you simply cannot be a slave to other people's perceptions and let that determine what you do. You have to dance as if no one's watching. Oh, the crocheted pillow says. Yes. See, but that's my problem when I've tried to do acting before and I've gotten to do, um, uh, asked to do auditions. The self-consciousness when there's a camera in your face and there's a casting director reading lines opposite you. And, um, I mean, okay, th- this is not something I would normally get into, but yeah, since yeah, you brought it up. Me. Yeah. How, I mean, there's no way for you to like tell people, how do you get over that? But, and I, and I think it might I be have, a I do have a way. How? How do you, how do you not think of how they must be thinking of you as they look at you and as the camera must see you? How do you shake the self-consciousness? So this is, I love this question because this gets to the root of the craft of acting. So if you're on a stage and like, let's say we're on a stage and that the audience is sitting over here and we're having a conversation, we're two Chekhov characters. We're having a conversation about going to Moscow. Um, so you have to act as if you're unselfconscious and you have to cheat yourself open so that the audience can see you, right? And we have to be making eye contact or pretending to be making eye contact and having a naturalistic conversation under the most unnatural circumstances. There are bright lights above us pounding down on us. We're in period costumes, shoes that don't quite fit, um, saying heightened language that we wouldn't exactly say in that way. So... And it's the same thing when you're on camera. When you're on camera, it's a different set of circumstances that make you self-conscious. Oh, there's a camera right there. I hope I get my lines right. Are we running late for lunch? Is the director happy with what they're seeing? Um, et cetera, et cetera. And it's the same thing at an audition. You know, it's this, are they, what are they thinking about me? Are they judging me? What are they seeing? So I call it like the, when you see the security camera footage, like in a 7-Eleven, it's up in the corner of the, on the ceiling, looking down, like you get, when you're self-conscious, your focus, your attention goes to that camera instead of this camera, uh-huh. which is eyeballs, looking at eyeballs, right? So all of the training that one does as an actor is simply tricks. And it's tricks to get you out of that self-consciousness. So, for instance, like they talk about acting like intentions, like you play an intention. Like, what is my intention? Like to cajole you or seduce you or to berate you or to try and figure you out, right? So every line has a, well, the only reason you're doing that intention. Well, yes, we have intentions in life, but not really. They're more subconscious, but it helps you get the kind of focus that you need. So you simply don't have the time or energy or to be able to put your focus into that security camera on the ceiling and to keep you grounded in the moment so breathing does that listening does that playing an intention does that you know inhabiting a character being in a character's body allows you to do that so as you study acting you're learning these essentially tricks to keep you from being self-conscious but if you haven't really studied it it's it's hard you know what I mean like you're so unselfconscious when you're on stage singing a song you're just like you're shaking your hips your hair's sweaty I mean you even fuck up a lyric here and there you you hit a wrong note and it doesn't matter because you're trying to get across the story and the feeling of the song to the audience so you're just a vehicle you're just a vessel you're an empty vessel to let that 
muse go through you and to let that energy story, music, notes go out and the feeling of that song. And so you don't give a fuck. You know what I mean? So how do you do that as an actor? So that's a very long-winded answer, but it's, it's essentially like the more you do it, the more you learn those tricks to keep you out of your head and get you less self-conscious and get you more in the juice of, of having a dialogue with someone where uh, you can be seen and not be tense, self-conscious, awkward, you know, making ex- gestures and expressions that you would never normally make. You know what I mean? So the main message of that is to be in the moment, like to really be in that moment. Mm-hmm. And I know I know it's funny you bring up on stage, and it's nice that I seem like I always am, but it's a battle, right? It's because every once in a while I'm thinking, oh my God, I'm so tired. Or I'm thinking, you know, just any, any million thoughts. I, when I was young, I was 17, my mom and I... Um, study transcendental meditation Mm. and uh, when you do transcendental meditation they give you a mantra and um, the whole trick is that you're trying to and and it is a trick you're trying to sit in a quiet place and push all the thoughts out of your mind to the point where you reach what they call the unified field and the unified field is a is where there is no thought and you're not aware of being in it until you're out of it right and I wonder how and, and, and I've, I've felt this so many times, how close it is when you're doing art, and, and it sounds like what you're describing with acting, if you can really lock in to the exclusion of all the other self-consciousness-inducing factors out there, to the moment that you're having with that person, that there is no other thought. They don't exist. And they keep trying to intrude, and that's the thing with meditation, right? The thoughts keep popping sure. in. Have you done meditation? I have. I do. I'm. I am a meditator. I'm an active meditator. Yes. Oh, it's fantastic, right? But and it it can be so, and it doesn't need to be anything fancy. Like sometimes my most successful meditations are just like I'm going to take ten minutes, set my timer. I'm just going to be still. I'm going to let my mind be like a tranquil pond. I'm just going to focus on my breathing and try and get to a place of just. Mm less thoughts popping around like popcorn yeah and it can be incredibly powerful 10 minutes later you feel revitalized and focused in a new way and it's nothing fancy there's no chanting or anything you need to do yeah what's funny because the transcendental meditation and the sanskrit sound that i was given all of that stuff and you know now i looked into it it costs thousands of dollars to be inducted in the transcendental meditation but i really don't think that that's a specific brand that is the only thing that works. It's mm-hmm. what you're saying. You can sit down and find a, a quiet place. But I've been blown away by, I think, the how similar that is to the act of creation, right? The, the silence that you find in meditation. When I work on a song, I'll play guitar for an hour, the same chords over and over again. And all that is is to find a place where all of the the noise falls away and I hear whatever the little nugget of melody or lyric mm. Mm. But I but it's funny when you were describing acting that was the the thing that pops out at me. So you you talk about this some um, in your great memoir, The Bassoon King, which I really think is super beautiful. Thanks for all the plugs. Well, I mean it's it, it's been out for a while. <laughs> when are you going to write your When are you going to write your memoir? Uh, uh, um, I don't know. I got a title for you. Oh yeah, what? Great hair. <laughs> the Rhett Miller story. Listen, don't objectify me, Rain. I'm more than just a head of luxurious hair. Um, 
So you you seem like you don't have to deal with a lot of like internally generated obstacles. You seem, although knowing you, dear God, man, what the fuck are you talking about? Okay, but but I see what you do with Soul Pancake, which I think is so great. Just in terms of being, you're literally like, plugging all of my stuff. I love it. it. Yeah, I know. The good thing is, I actually believe in all this <laughs> stuff. But I really love what you do there, where you really think about and talk about deep stuff and the stuff that we rub up against as human beings that makes makes it hard for us to not just make creative, um, you know, things that we bring into the world, but just to be a human. So, so you. You struggle like everyone else. I know oh, sure, this. yeah, yeah. I, I don't, I don't know if it's super obvious to people that just know you as, you know, as Dwight the public or, figure, yeah. exactly. But how do you deal with this? And is it still such a part of your life, or do you feel like you've been able to overcome it mostly? And if so, yeah. Well, I, um, I have struggled uh, a great deal in my life um, on a number of different levels. I had. A seemingly kind of normal, loving, balanced childhood from the outside, but I think I've found, and maybe a lot of people feel this way, that my childhood was extremely traumatic, and uh, I suffered a great deal because of it on a number of different levels. Uh, I won't go into those details right now. My various parents are all still alive, so I don't want to get into the nitty gritty of that, but. That created a lot of patterns of behavior in my life um, that it made it, you know, really difficult for me to be intimate with anyone. Uh, I suffered from a lot of addiction issues, uh, especially in my 20s and 30s, uh, and uh, had a lot of uh, ego and narcissism issues that I think a lot of artists have, and actors especially. Um, I... Then in the midst of all that, I got really famous and rich, and uh, that's like throwing kerosene on the fire. So my my narcissism really swelled up. I had a lot of marital issues. Uh, that's when I did a deep dive into therapy and stuff like that. So I think it's important for me to say this and own this because I do think people look at like, oh, look, there's that, that TV actor. He's so funny and naturally weird and... I bet his life is great and he's started this nonprofit and this media company, blah, blah, blah. But that there was an incredible amount of, of struggle along the way. Not to mention just the artistic struggle of like, I worked for 10 years in New York City. I never made over $20,000 in a year as an actor, you know. So there's that as well. Yeah. Um, all of a sudden, I got my first TV gig and I got paid $65,000 for it. So that, you know, and that was like, I'd never made over 20 grand. And so a, a tremendous amount of struggle. Um, therapy really helped. Um, therapy is tricky because it really depends on your therapist. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of bad ones out there. So unfortunately, you got to like find the one that's going to really help you take a journey. Um, not just any schmo can kind of go to college and spend three or five years getting their therapy degree, it doesn't mean that they have the wisdom and insight to kind of help you on, on your path. So there's that. Um, but it's deeper than that because what therapy really means is like, I'm going to work on myself. I'm going to ask questions. I'm going to look at patterns of behavior in my life that are making me miserable. And I'm going to challenge those patterns. I'm going to make commitments to change. 
And um, so that led me personally to uh, a reinvestigation of my religious and spiritual life. I grew up a member of the Baha'i faith and then, like you mentioned before, and then left it for a long time. Then I came back to it. And I do think that there are spiritual tools like meditation that have helped me tremendously in the last 10 or 15 years or so kind of get my shit together and figure out how to live a more rich, balanced, loving life, how to be a better husband and a better friend and a better human being on the planet. So that was, that was a lot, but a lot of struggle. Yeah. I love that. I, I think you're doing so great. And it's funny that the, what I've learned about the Baha'i faith through you, cause I'd never heard of it. Like a lot of people probably mm-hmm. until I knew you. And, um, it's just like, okay, I, I love this because it, it's really simple. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm sure there's a lot to it, yeah. but the the message of it seems to really be, it seems to really meet up with the things that I love about Christianity, the Sermon on the Mount. Mm-hmm. Yep. Do, do unto others, you know? Look. Yeah. Anyway. Some basic, basic stuff. There's only one God. There's only one religion. There's one humanity. We're a diverse uh, flowers of a, of, a, of a diverse garden on this planet. And we have to love each other and try and make the world a better place. It's just real basic kind of building blocks of spirituality. But real positive. Positive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it's funny. If I, if I had to characterize what I know about you and the, the work you've done personally and professionally, I would say it's all very positive. Like, I really do feel like you're intentional about trying to make your, your world and the world better. Well, it's interesting. You know, thank you for saying that. And you're very, being very glowing and I, I that that's appreciated, <laughs> that's but true. you don't really, you haven't seen my asshole side, so you don't know like, uh, other aspects of me, but I will say that my spiritual journey has helped with that because my ego journey, which is part of my artist journey and my narcissism, um, is which brought me a lot of misery and is uh, all about promoting myself. So, how do I get more well liked? How do I get more well known? How do I make more money? How can I have increased comfort? How can I get what I want without really working for it? This is what my ego wants, all this stuff. I want status. I want accolades, right? Um, but like the Buddha says, life is suffering. And the reason that life is suffering is because we have attachments. And, you know, we have these wants and that wants will lead to suffering. So, um, again, part of this spiritual journey of, that goes hand in hand with creativity is like, how do I stay an artist that, um, can I can put my focus on service to others? You know, can I make people laugh because that's a God-given gift that I was given, and it helps tell a story. And store people need stories to heal and to connect. And so I try and focus my ego shit into some other down some other paths. But it's a daily struggle, Red. It's yeah. not like. I'm not some bodhisattva guy. I just have, I've just done some work. And so I have a little, I have some focus. You're mindful of, of it. Mm-hmm. Do, um, is there a way that you're able to sneak off and just be a guy and not have to be beholden to the celebrity or the persona or the ex- expectations of others? Yeah, there is. And, and I, um, 
I have certain groups of friends that don't give a shit that I was on a TV show. Um, we live in such a celebrity-obsessed culture, mm-hmm. too. It's like people are just like... Even in my faith community, in the Baha'i faith, there's some of the worst. Just like, <laughs> it's like kind of putting me on a pedestal because I happen to be... There's not many Baha'is, you know. You know, there's 150, 200,000 in the United States. Like, and I'm one of the most famous ones that so put me on a pedestal that way. But being, that's why I like being with my family a lot because, yeah. you know, my wife keeps me, keeps it real. And my son does too. And how long have you and Holiday been together? We've been uh, married for 24 years and we've been together about uh, 28 years. I love that. Yeah. It's been a long time. It's been a long time. So, yeah, but I'd like to find more ways to do that. One of the questions that I have, and maybe I'd like to throw this back at you, okay. is everything I do is for an audience and I've always thought of it as for an audience. So the idea, like I talked about like making, one thing I've always liked to do is make stuff with clay. Uh-huh. Um, I like drawing okay and I like painting okay, but for some reason I'm really drawn to like making stuff in three dimensions. And, but like the thought of doing it and like people not really seeing it like just doing it for me to make something beautiful and strange that's an expression of me in some way uh, without it there being an art show at the end or me posting it on Instagram, for instance, or me like writing a poem that isn't going to be read by thousands or tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people is is very odd for me. And there's a part of me that kind of goes, well, what's the point? You know, like... Maybe because I'm an actor and you do stuff so that audiences will see it. Yeah. And there's part of that interaction. Do you ever do... So you, you write poetry, you write children's books, you write songs, certainly. Do you ever do anything artistic that's not for an audience? It's funny. Does that give you a thrill? I'll, I'll answer you. But does that give you a thrill, the idea of doing something that doesn't go out there and as under your name, something that, that isn't necessarily for an audience? Or does that just feel like... Just defeating. It feels defeating to me, yeah. but I but I know that that's something's broken in that. Like I should want to do, create stuff that, and I know actors that do this. That you know, I know actors that are also painters. That yeah, and they don't necessarily. It's not about doing the art show so that people think that they're really brilliant, but they just, um, they just love the process of making something beautiful and personal. Yeah. Uh, Man, so what about you? I think about this. I think about this a lot, and from a, a couple of different angles. One is the question of staying in your lane. Like, okay, you, you're already uh, for, for me. Like, I'm already a relatively successful musician. I get to feed my kids, pay my mortgage, doing music, which in this day and age is insanely difficult or unlikely. Mm-hmm. All right, so. Who am I to think that my my dream of someday writing a novel, which I need to stop talking about until I do it. But in the meantime, I've written a number of essays and short stories. And like you said, the kid's book, like, why do you also need to write? And then if I do go put something out there, anybody can look at it and go, well, this this is going to suck. This is like a vanity project from some musician. And um, and again, that just feeds that insecurity, right, of like, of... Um, Oh no, they're going to look at this and they're going to make fun of me. They're going to laugh at me. They're going to hate it. Whatever. I'll never be as good as dot dot dot. Fill in the blank. You know, I interviewed. Mm. I've interviewed Michael Shabon for this. Mm. If you go around saying, 
I'll never be as good as Michael Chabon. Well, then one person in the world is going to write books. So that's not really fair. So then the question, and then the trick I have to keep doing to myself is, I want to write this because I want to write this, because I've always wanted to write these things that I'm writing. And so then I have to tell myself, and it is that. It's, it's a pep talk to myself. It doesn't matter. If it sucks, it doesn't matter. If they laugh at you, it doesn't matter. You know, I, I do think I'll be able to keep doing music regardless. I don't mean knock wood unless, unless I really screwed up and did something horrible personally. <laughs> God. But, um, but I, think, I think it's important to, to feed that part of me that's, that started off with this. And I always wanted people to like what I did. And even if I do something that's in a, some other genre entirely, I would want people to like it, I guess. You know who I think about is um, J.K. Rowling, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. There's never been a more successful writer mm -hmm. in, in history. Right. Um, she wrote a, is writing a really great series of thriller detective novels hmm. under the pseudonym... Uh, Cormoran Strike. No, that's the name of her detective. Okay. Anyway, it's under a pseudonym. Okay. And she wrote them and sent them out to publishers completely secretly. Wow. Yeah. And she got all this feedback and all this stuff. And eventually somebody at her law firm that she ended up suing outed her as being the person writing under that but pseudonym. But she successfully sold the books? I think so. Yeah. Now, I, 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 would want, I would need to do a deep dive to know the whole story. But um, but she really did it, and I get that right because it's almost it's what you're talking about. You would love to be able to do something and have it be judged, or or have it even just put out into the world uh -huh. without any connection necessarily to the work you've done previously or what people know and love about you already. Like as good as all that stuff is, it becomes baggage, you mm. know. Mm. So I don't know. I mean, I I love the idea of making the thing you want to make, even if it's not what people want from you. Because that becomes its own shackle, you know. Mm, mm. I would love to see the stuff you, you know, you talk about having written. I would love to see stuff you've written. I would love to see, I would love to see, um, you know, what you come up with as a sculpture. But I can see why it's, it's a little terrifying because. Yeah, but do I make a sculpture? Here's, <laughs> here's a question. If I make a sculpture um, and I, I want it to just be. Like coming right from my subconscious, like I want my subconscious to just throw up and like make that sculpture. And do I Instagram it? <laughs> you know, really, because I have one point nine Instagram, one yeah. million Instagram followers. Do they do they see it and comment on it? Oh, that's cool, Rain. I'm so glad you do that. Or and I get that acc accolades and like. That, yeah, I get that buzz from like, oh, this is so cool. Or even I get pissed off like, that's stupid and that's, you know, that sucks or whatever. Like, or do I just keep it, you know, or do I submit it to a gallery under a pseudonym or something like that? And, or does no one ever see it and I just do it for myself? I don't know. That's, it's a weird, it's a weird thing because this is where you separate the public aspects of art, you and I are public, we're performers. So we create, you create a song, you sing it for an audience, then you press it onto a CD or a streaming service, and then tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people are listening to it. And in the best case scenario, millions of people are listening to it. I do the same thing with characters and with stories. But what about that, the craft, you know, of just making something because it's a personal expression of your soul 
it's important to you. You want to make something beautiful and express something about yourself in some new way where there's no audience involved. So I'm about to make my 20th record and I and I, I wonder about this all the time and, and musician friends of mine will talk about this. How do you write a song without being aware of what people expect from you? Mm. Um, you know, how do you write a song without thinking about your whole stupid career while you're writing the song? Mm. You know, um, I went to see Liz Fair last night and she talked a, a little bit about, um, she was talking about, well, when I went into the pop world, you know, because she did yeah. have a big pop hit for a minute there. Yeah. But she came from being like this really Indie, snotty, yeah. ingenue, yeah. you know, F-bomb dropping. Um, so, I mean, it all comes back to self-awareness, right? In a way, because if I'm thinking, well, what do they want from me? They want another train song. They love Time Bomb. So they want another train song. So, okay, so I should write a train song. But they also love it when I mention Texas towns. So now I'm going to write a train song about Abilene. Okay. How much is that song going to suck if I'm going through like a computer program or a checklist of right. what people want from me? Yeah. So what do they want from you? They want Dwight. Okay. Does Dwight make fucking uh, sculptures? No. Sorry. Or maybe he does. I don't know. I mean, I just think any kind of working backwards like that has got to be anathema to the, the essence of creation. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. I don't. I don't have an answer for that. That's, I mean, <laughs> I that's, yeah, but I think it does come back to what you were talking about about being in the moment, and which which really just means being authentic, right, and not being overly self aware of what people want. Well, it kind of was a difficult transition for me, you know, because I view myself as an actor. So I have played, you know, fifty roles on the stage. You know, I have played another fifty roles on the camera. One of those was Dwight, and I did 200 episodes of that, and that got to be very famous, and people know me from that, and they kind of see me as that. But I have to be very careful for myself to kind of go, well, wait a minute. I'm an actor. My job is to transform from Rain, dopey Rain Wilson <laughs> to some other character that walks different, thinks different, is different in the world, is different in their bodies, uses language differently, has a different emotional past, has a different you know, goal in the future, and to, use, to utilize that transformation in the telling of stories. That's, that's what I do uh, professionally. One of those hit the zeitgeist, you know? The other ones haven't. Um, and so, and that's okay, you know? Uh, literally, probably, you know, Hundreds of millions of people have seen The Office. And other independent films that I've done have been seen probably by 50,000 people. But I may be even more proud of that work. Um, so I just have to... It helps keep me grounded to say, like, I'm just an actor. Yeah. One of my roles... I know plenty of actors like me, as good as me, who have done as much work as me, but they're, it hasn't taken off the way The Office has. Um, they're just as valid and worthwhile as I am, all of my work. Hopefully, hopefully when I'm hit by a bus and I'm dead and they look back on the career of Rain Wilson, they'll kind of go, oh, wait a minute. He did a lot of different stuff here. He did Hesher, where he played a pill-popping, drug-addicted morning dad. He did, you know, this role and that role. And um, he's done some really interesting, daring, different stuff. 
uh, I think it's a little too much for me to think that that's going to get recognized now. If you were to go back to yourself when you were still in the darkest places, or well, I, I won't say that, not the darkest places, but during the salad days, which I don't know why they call them that. Okay. But like a 21-year-old version of you, but today, because the circumstances now are, I'm, you know, so different necessarily um, due to technological advances and all that. 21-year-old version of Rain today. Mm-hmm. What advice would you give yourself? Um... I would talk about um, two things that pop to mind. One is what we talked about briefly, which is ego stuff, which is that need that an actor has, and I don't know about a singer-songwriter, but I imagine it's, it's similar. That need is an actor that an actor has for, to have an audience, to have adulation, to have laughter, and to get increased status because of that like to really say hey you gotta look at that need where's that coming from and you gotta you gotta check that Mm -hmm. because although it's driving you and moving you forward and there's a lot of positive things about that that can be a trap you know and that, that can fuck you up and I would say conversely on a completely unrelated note one of the things that I'm doing now more is like more writing and directing and stuff like that. And, you know, I founded this company, Soul Pancakes. So I was a, you know, a co-founder of a company uh, and, you know, I've written books and stuff like that. And I'm not trying to brag. I'm just saying that my view of myself at 21 was very narrow, was very small. I thought, oh, I could go to a regional theater like Dallas Theater Center and I could play you know, puck in a Midsummer Night's Dream and I could get $787 a week for it. And and that'll be great. And that's what I can do and what I should do. So, but what, but I, because so many doors opened because of the office, I got to do so much. And then I saw that actually my capacity was much greater than I thought it was. So, what can I do to have that conversation with myself at a young age to increase my capacity of of thinking of ourselves? We all think of ourselves in such limited capacities. Well, I'm good at this. I can do this little thing. And we've got to start there. But I think usually our, our it's very rare that you meet someone who thinks their capacity. I mean, I mean Donald Trump thinks his capacity <laughs> is much greater. He's like, I'm brilliant. I had a perfect phone call. I'm a genius. I'm the, you know, he thinks of himself as like, uh, on the, that that's a kind of grandiosity that I'm not talking about. But most people limit themselves. That's all. Well, listen, I I love. I just think you're such a good person, and I know I've been glowing, and um, but it's it's all legit, and I really appreciate the honesty you've shown here on in this conversation. Wheels up, wheels up. I'm going to go change the name right now. Um, thank you so much for sitting down with me, Ray. Hey, this was a profound pleasure. I love what you're doing with this podcast, if I could get the name right. And uh, it's super cool. I'm so thrilled to, to be a guest on it. Thanks so much. Now let's go catch that ambulance that keeps driving yeah, by. Yeah, Jesus. What's with, <laughs> where's the fire? <laughs> All right. Bye. All right. Thank you so much for listening to Wheels Off. Please be sure to rate and review the show on iTunes. 
That helps us appear higher in the search results and lets other folks know that it's a cool podcast to listen to. Also, as the kids say, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or anywhere else that you listen to shows like this so that you never miss an episode. This has been Wheels Off, and I'm Rhett Miller, encouraging you to create every day. Thanks, y'all. Hi, this is Paul Phelps. And this is Monica Strutt. And we're from the Daily Music Business Podcast. We're joined by a number of other really great hosts in creating daily content with great advice for independent musicians just like you. That's right. We put out episodes daily on all topics from music marketing to branding, advice on signing with a manager and label and anything else you need to up-level the business side of your music career. We've got it covered. Subscribe to the Daily Music Business Podcast today on your favorite podcast catcher. Subscribe today to the Daily Music Business Podcast on your favorite podcast platform.